Let's uh, begin with prayer. Please stand with me. <clears throat> Our Lord, we do seek for thy treasure, not a not an earthly treasure, not a a worldly treasure, uh, but that uh, spiritual pearl of great price as we come to thy word this evening and we ask that thou would would grant to us um, eyes to behold uh, the treasure that is in thy word that we would not uh, dismiss what we are reading what we are studying as if it were something casual something ordinary uh, it is the infallible word of God. It is Jesus Christ speaking unto us. So help us, our Lord, to, uh, to receive it as such, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Uh, wash us, Lord, and cleanse us of our sins as we approach thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. <clears throat> we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. John 9, verses 1 through 3. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Well, we finally finished uh, John chapter 8. It took a few weeks uh, to get through that chapter. Uh, all of that we have read in John 8 uh, took place in the temple, uh, beginning with uh, the woman taken in adultery, and then ending, the very end of the chapter in verse 59, ending with the Jews taking up stones uh, to kill Jesus, uh, to stone him for declaring himself to be the great I am that appeared, the same I am that appeared to Moses in the burning bush uh, back in Exodus chapter 3. All of John chapter 9 details the Lord Jesus healing uh, this man that was born blind and the severe consequences that befall this blind man as he turns to the Lord Jesus uh, from the unbelieving Jews, the Jewish leaders at that time. Uh, we'll see that he, because he stood with Christ, uh, he was cast out of the temple. That is, he was excommunicated for trusting in Christ. So we'll 
eventually get to the consequences, but we're just uh, introducing the chapter uh, this evening and uh, covering these three verses together. So let's look at uh, John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. <clears throat> now we don't, we don't know how much time passed between John eight fifty nine, where they took up stones to stone Jesus, and John 9, 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Uh, it would seem that there has been at least some time that's elapsed from the previous verse in verse 59 because uh, they're, uh, they're uh, coming after him with stones. And here in verse 1, we don't find any uh, chaos or any pursuit of Christ. Uh, it does seem that whatever was happening in 859... Uh, is not happening in 9-1. So it would appear that some time has lapsed, although it's still within, I think, the same general time frame because uh, the, there's no events that are mentioned by John that occur between uh, John 8-59 and John 9-1. So this, this would probably indicate sometime maybe the following day we're just not told, but uh, some time probably has passed. We also see that this uh, miracle that we are focusing on in John chapter 9 likewise occurred in Jerusalem uh, as in the previous chapter. So perhaps again we've not, we've not moved uh, so far beyond what happened in John 8. It's still in Jerusalem. Nothing has been indicated, as I said, that would lead us to believe that there's been uh, months or, or weeks or something of that nature that has passed, but fairly soon afterwards, it would seem. At least a, a brief intermission to allow for some cooling of the tempers of uh, those unbelieving Jewish leaders that came after Christ in John eight fifty nine. One of the prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Jesus and the Messiah who was to come identified him as the healer of the blind. For example, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, we read, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book. And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Likewise, in the same book, prophetic book, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap 
as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. So these were miraculous signs that are mentioned in these prophecies uh, that uh, Jesus uh, would, in fact, perform these miracles. One way to identify uh, that he was the Messiah, another one would be through the miracles he performed that were prophesied that he would perform, and he fulfilled those very prophecies. In fact, when John the Baptist, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 11, uh, was going through a a time of doubting uh, on his part. He was in prison, uh, there imprisoned by Herod, and for saying that Herod should not be taking his brother's wife uh, and And so he sends, John the Baptist sends his own disciples to Jesus and asks uh, if Jesus was the one that they were to expect. Was he the Messiah? And again, we know this must have been a, a very difficult time for John because he was the one who ordained Jesus. He was the one who beheld the heavens open and, uh, Uh, the dove, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming and lighting upon Jesus. He was the one who heard the Father speak uh, from the heavens and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, again, it it illustrates how even the mighty, uh, even those who uh, we look up to so greatly can have their periods uh, of uh, doubt, despair, into which they fall. And here, uh, John the Baptist did. Jesus tells uh, the disciples of John, as they go back and report to John, basically, he says, uh, tell John what you see. And what did they see? He says, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So those were the signs that uh, Jesus says, report back to John. And he does that basically because he knows John is familiar with the prophecy in Isaiah that we just read. And that was confirmation uh, to John the Baptist. Yet, yes, Jesus was uh, the prophesied Messiah. This healing of this man born blind uh, was not performed in secret, some hidden place, uh, but was performed uh, in a very public place where the masses of people could behold could see the miracle, uh, where they also knew the man. Uh, this, was, this man was probably, because he was born blind, he was probably in the same location day after day after day uh, begging uh, for uh, the mercy, alms, uh, to be able to provide for himself. And so, uh, again, this was uh, something that even 
uh, in John chapter 9, if you go down just a few verses, verses 8 and 9, says, The neighbors therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Isn't this the, the person that, that uh, uh, was blind for all of these years? Uh, he was not faking it. Uh, this, this was his, uh, by the, all of those who knew him, uh, they knew he could not see. And so this was not a, um, this was not a um, pretended miracle, as happens, I think, very often in a lot of these healing services, uh, so-called healing services, where uh, in many cases people are brought into the services uh, who are plants um, there, uh, as various reports have been done to demonstrate in many of these uh, situations that they are simply plants that uh, uh, he calls forth, the, the so-called healer calls forth, and, uh, and performs some alleged mighty miracle uh, in their presence. This, this was a man that was there for many years, and uh, so this was, again, not a plant. Uh, this was man who truly was blind. This man was not blind uh, due to some accident or due to some disease that occurred later in his life. Uh, he was born that way. He had never seen anything with his natural eyes. This uh, really uh, is a spiritual illustration and it points to our own inherent, innate blindness, spiritual blindness from our conception due to our sin. You see, we did not become spiritually blind after birth, sometime later in life, we were born and conceived. We were conceived and born spiritually blind. And that continued to be the case with us until God gave us sight, until God came by way of his miraculous power and gave us the ability to see with faith, the spiritual sight that we received, again, was basically, the, as I said, the seeing of faith. And without the seeing of faith, um, there is no salvation. But how do we get the seeing of faith? Does everybody simply have uh, the ability to see with faith from the time that they are, uh, that they are uh, conceived and born? Uh, or some young age, or what? when did they receive that ability? Well, again, the Bible teaches we're all blind spiritually. Every single last one of us. None of us can see until God gives us graciously, by his mercy, where he gives us sight. And when he gives us sight, then we're able to see with faith. But we can't see with faith until... He gives us that sight, just as he does with this blind man that we find here in John chapter 9. 
Jesus says, you'll remember to what he says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he's born again, he cannot see with faith the kingdom of God. So what is needed before we can see with faith is that we need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. We need to be effectually called where God, uh, using another, another metaphor, raises us spiritually from the dead. Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Bible uses uh, figurative language for us all. Uh, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't see spiritually. We can't hear spiritually. Um, uh, we, again, are lame. We can't walk spiritually. Until God comes, Christ comes, and raises us from the dead, gives us spiritual eyes, gives us spiritual ears, heals our, our legs spiritually so that we can walk uh, and do his will. So all of that comes from the Lord. Uh, and until then, uh, we are as blind as this man, we're as blind spiritually as this man was uh, physically, naturally. So this man was absolutely dependent upon the mercy of others. Very sad situation. The blind today have uh, many more advantages uh, uh, over those who were blind at the time of Christ. Um, all that the blind could do then uh, was to beg uh, for um, the, and fall upon the mercy of others. The blind were not taught to read. Uh, they did not have braille uh, uh, then, as they do now. Um, they were not taught to care for themselves. Um, uh, they basically were, again, um, unable, uh, without the help of others, uh, totally unable. Whereas today there are organizations uh, that care for the blind. And uh, they show mercy um, uh, to the blind in many, many ways. So this was a most pitiful situation on behalf, uh, on the part of this particular uh, man born blind. Now notice the question that arises in the minds of the disciples here in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the question that the disciples ask does in one sense imply a correct understanding about where blindness originally comes from. Where does blindness originally come from? Where does any misery in this life originally come from? Where does death originally come from. It comes from the fall of man. It comes from man sinning against God and God then judging 
as he, as he said he would in that covenant he made with Adam, that if you don't obey me, the consequence, the judgment that would fall would be death, as well as all the miseries of this life. You remember uh, in Genesis 3, the Lord says that women would have sorrow and pain in childbirth. Uh, the Lord said as a result of the fall that uh, uh, mankind would eat by the sweat of the brow and that mankind would came from dust and would return to dust. So all of the miseries of this life, death and all the miseries of this life, originally are the result of sin and God's judgment upon man. The fact that even children <clears throat> suffer miseries in this life, the fact that, that children die, even very small children, babies, in their infancy, before uh, birth, uh, die, implies their part as well as our part in Adam's sin, in that first sin. This isn't something that, that is my, uh, out of my own, my own head. Uh, this is something that the Word of God teaches. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, I'm sorry, I said Matthew, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Romans 5, 12 through 14, we read, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So even those who did not sin after the likeness God gave to Adam very clearly, command not to eat of the fruit, but even those, all those who do not sin after the same likeness, uh, after the same way, by way of uh, sinning and, and um, violating an express commandment of God, death fell upon them as well, which would include, again, children. Uh, how do we explain the death of children? The Bible has uh, an explanation. It says in Romans 6, 23, uh, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The reason there's death, the reason there's illness, the reason that there's uh, all manner, pestilences, earthquakes, all of the miseries of this life comes from sin. That was not what we find in the Garden of Eden. There wasn't sin, there wasn't death, there wasn't uh, illnesses, there wasn't earthquakes, there weren't pestilences in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that came after the fall of man. It was God's judgment that fell upon man. 
1 Corinthians 15.22 says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So all who are in Adam will die. All who are in Jesus Christ by faith uh, will live. Will live. Thus when uh, uh, even Christian apologists uh, seek to excuse and remove God entirely from the reason that we have present miseries and that the world is in such a, a state of suffering uh, and rather say that the reason that we are in this particular state of suffering is merely or only because of the sin of man again is to basically try to say well it's merely man chose to sin man exercised his free will and sin and therefore we have all of the miseries of this world but that's that's certainly part of the issue that man did freely sin but the part that's missing is that god therefore judged the world by bringing upon the world all that we see it's god's judgment so if we leave that part out of it then we've left a, a very very important part of the bible bible's ex explanation god's explanation as to why there are miseries they are again the result of god's judgment upon sin <clears throat> Contemporary Christianity likes to point to the miseries of this life as being merely the result of man's free will, as if God had nothing at all to do with the miseries of this life. Uh, he does. As I said, it is his judgment. The truth of the matter is that man did freely choose to sin, but God righteously has judged man and not only Adam but all of Adam's posterity by ordinary generation meaning only Christ is accepted uh, is uh, not a part of those in Adam that receive all of that judgment uh, Jesus Christ uh, it was not a part of that uh, posterity that received the judgment of God. Likewise, apologists want us to believe, Christian apologists want us to believe that God does not send anyone to hell, but rather that mankind freely chooses to go to hell by their rejection of Christ and the gospel. Again, I submit to you that this is simply a vain attempt on the part of uh, modern Christianity uh, to remove God from the equation as a righteous judge, a righteous judge who does sentence and condemn men, unforgiven men, women, children, unforgiven sinners, to hell 
he sends people to hell as a righteous judge. What do we do with passages if we think that God does not send people to hell at all as a righteous judge? What do we do with passages like these? Matthew 10, 28. <clears throat> and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Speaking of God, he's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's, that's what God does when he uh, sentences and condemns as a righteous judge uh, unforgiven sinners uh, to hell. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10 says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Punished. Uh, certainly those who do not come in faith to Jesus Christ, who therefore are not forgiven of their sin, God does judge them. So again, I'm not saying that God just judges without, without a cause. There is obviously the fact that he uh, is a righteous judge and those who violate his law sin against him and who are not forgiven for those sins, they have to pay for their own, for their own sins. We will either have our sins paid for by Jesus Christ or we will pay for them ourselves. We'll either trust in Christ and his payment on our behalf or we will suffer for all eternity uh, by way of paying uh, for the sins we've committed against him. So there will be payment for sin. It's just a matter of who's going to be paying for it. Jesus for those who are his children, who trust in him, who believe in him, or the person who has sinned against God. Uh, so there, God is a righteous and just judge. If, if, we, if we think that, that um, a judge today ought not to allow um, those who violate the law um, and I'm thinking in terms of those who um, violate the moral law, those laws that we can actually find uh, in Scripture. For example, 
you know, the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the various laws that are listed there. And uh, that if we think that that's a, a good judge, uh, that if, for example, one of our children was kidnapped and that the judge said to the kidnapper after our child was found, that's fine, uh, just go right ahead, um, no penalty. Uh, I'm a merciful judge. Uh, I, I, I love everybody and therefore there's no consequences to your sin. Uh, I doubt that uh, any of us are going to say, uh, uh, in, at least who are listening to this probably, uh, that that's a righteous judge. And that's what's happening in many uh, places throughout our country. Uh, that uh, uh, even the laws that are upon the books are not being um, enforced. And as a result, uh, crime is running rampant because uh, of uh, wicked, unjust judges who are not enforcing the law. Well, God is not a judge uh, who can be accused of being unjust. He will repay sin. And he, as we said earlier, he either paid and poured out his wrath and his judgment on your behalf upon his son, or you will have to suffer for all eternity in paying for that sin. You see that this idea that God doesn't send anyone to hell, God does not judge, that people themselves just freely choose to go to hell uh, by way of their rejection, and that's all that's actually uh, taught, uh, this is a very dangerous doctrine. It's a very dangerous uh, and false doctrine um, concerning uh, God's uh, sovereignty. It's forming a God of our own opinion, uh, a, a God of our own fancy, uh, a God that we want to have that just uh, simply excuses uh, all of our sin, uh, that we do not have any consequences uh, for our sin, uh, regardless of what we do. Um, and again, uh, it's, it's not my standard, it's not your standard, it's God's standard. Um, I'm not God, you're not God. Uh, the only one we can appeal to is the God who has created us and made us, the God who has established um, the rules as it were. And Jesus Christ came, and the reason that he can take our place is because he fulfilled all righteousness for us, his people. When he went to the cross, he went to the cross as being a perfect sacrifice, never having failed to keep any of God's commandments. Absolutely perfect in thought, word, and deed. Therefore, as the perfect sacrifice, he was able to take upon himself my sin and your sin, the sin of all his dear children, the sin of all those who, who have put their faith and trust in him, the sin of his elect. 
he was able to carry and bear that sin. And God the Father poured out his holy wrath upon his son as he hung upon the cross. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But at the end of that time, Jesus, you'll remember, cried out. Before he breathed his last breath, he cried out, It is finished. Which is uh, another way of expressing uh, the term, uh, It is finished, paid in full. That the debt of sin against all of his people, every sin, that Jesus died to pay, he did in fact pay for all of his people, for all of his elect. He left nothing undone. And so let us again, whenever we hear uh, something like that, that uh, uh, God doesn't send anyone to hell uh, that uh, they choose to go to hell. Uh, let us realize that that's not what the Bible teaches. God does send people to hell as a righteous judge. But he also rescues and saves because he's a merciful savior. And those who flee to Jesus Christ will find mercy and will find that that judgment, that condemnation that rests upon us has been removed altogether. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this false teaching ultimately undermines really the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ suffered upon uh, the cross if God does not send people to hell, why did Jesus die upon the cross? Why did, he, why did he suffer? Why did he bear the wrath of God if God does not send people to hell? It undermines the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is good news because Jesus has borne God's wrath for us. That's why it's good news. It's not good news uh, if we didn't deserve condemnation. However, if we deserve condemnation, if we deserve God's everlasting judgment and, and that re was removed from us because Jesus bore it for us, that is the best news that we'll ever hear, that we'll ever receive. That we do not have to endure God's eternal punishment in hell. Dear ones, God does not reluctantly judge unforgiven sinners in hell, but he does so as the sovereign and as the righteous judge. That's who he is. He's a righteous. He can't do anything else but be a righteous and holy judge and to remove that from his nature as an attribute is to basically change who God is. It's to form a God of our own imagination. 
we have to include that. And so the question asked by the disciples, it also implies, and I know I'm covering some, some uh, heavy, uh, very weighty doctrines uh, this evening, but uh, again, these are not doctrines that, that I have simply formulated on my own. These are doctrines that come from God himself, and if I do not present them, I'm the one who's unfaithful. I'm the one who's not being uh, a good shepherd to the sheep that the chief shepherd uh, has given to me to care for. And so it's very, very important that, that not only you hear, but that I say, that I speak, that I teach what Jesus has, has given to us, what all of God's word teaches. Jesus said, teaching them, that is, those who come to him, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. When the disciples asked the question, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This also, I believe, implies a, a misunderstanding um, of God's word. I think that they, they had a proper understanding that, uh, that ultimately uh, death and all the miseries of this life are the result of sin and God's judgment back in, in the Garden of Eden. I think that that's certainly something they accurately uh, would have understood, but I think that there was a misunderstanding here, perhaps also, uh, as they asked this question, back in the second commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, <clears throat> Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And you, no doubt, heard this, read this, perhaps wondered, um, again, uh, what to think about this. But uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Now notice what we read. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So when they ask who sinned uh, here, uh, did the blind man sin or did his parents sin? It may be that they were thinking of a passage like this, where it talks about God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But notice in this particular instance in Exodus 25, it's not only the fathers 
that hate God, but the children as well that hate God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation, that, are, that is, generation of them that hate me. So the children are following in the footsteps of the fathers who hated God. And God visits, therefore, the judgment of those who continue generation after generation to hate him. He visits them with judgment, is what God is saying. However, did God, in what we have just read in Exodus, did God intend to say that the personal sins of fathers are directly and immediately accounted as the personal sins of the children? Or rather that the personal sins of fathers are indirectly and immediately accounted by way of passing along the sin of the fathers to the next generation. I dare say, again, God is not saying that directly and immediately, that God imputes the sins of fathers to the children. That's very clear, I think, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. We read, for example, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. And so, again, it's very clear from Scripture that each of us is responsible for our own sin. Uh, our sin is not imputed to our children. Now, what God's law said is that the sin of fathers may indeed be passed on to those who hate him. And so, again, to we see this generational, many times this generational um, sin and God's punishment that falls upon fathers to children, to their children, to posterity, after that, because they continue to live and to repeat the sins of their fathers. But God is not imputing the sin of fathers to the children. The reason that happened, and it happened only once, in the Garden of Eden, where Adam represented as a covenant head all of his posterity uh, born by way of ordinary generation. As we said, he didn't represent Jesus Christ, who was not born by ordinary generation, but by extraordinary generation, miraculous generation. But that's the only time in which, again, the, uh, the, the sin of our father, Adam, was imputed to uh, all of his posterity, and his sin was passed on 
uh, by way of a sinful nature uh, from generation to generation. But that is not the case. After that, each person who sins, God says, is responsible for their sin. The children do not have to pay for the sin of the fathers if they do not repeat the sin of the fathers. If they continue the sin of the fathers, uh, then obviously they will pay for their own sin. Is there always a direct and immediate relationship of, of uh, judicial cause and effect between miseries, affliction, death, and personal sin? Is there always the case that, that when we suffer in this life, we are suffering for some personal sin that we have committed? That, that there is this, this immediate uh, cause, judicial cause and effect with regard to what we suffer in this life? Well, I don't believe that that's the case. Jesus says neither the man nor his parents sinned. He wasn't... He was not um, born blind because of some personal sin on the part of the parents, nor because of some personal sin on his part. Uh, so again, I think this makes very clear that there is not uh, some immediate judicial cause and effect by way of uh, necessarily of what we suffer as being related or being the penalty of some personal sin that we've committed. We can't simply look at ourselves or people who are in a state of suffering and say, I wonder what sin they committed to be undergoing that particular trial and affliction. Yeah, that, was, that was the way Job's friends viewed it. Um, they, they said, it's a result of Job. Job, you've done something. You've, you've committed some sin, and that's why you're suffering. That's why you're going through what you're going. He denied that was the case. He didn't know of any particular sin that he, had, that he was suffering for and that he had not repented of. But in Job 4, verses 7 through 8, Eliphaz, one of, one of the so-called friends, says, Remember, I pray thee, he's speaking to Job, Remember, I pray thee, Whoever perished, being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. You're just reaping uh, the iniquity that you have sown, Job. Admit it. Confess it. In Job 8, 6, likewise, uh, <clears throat> we read, this is Bildad, another one of his so-called friends, so Job 8.6 says, If thou wert pure and upright, surely now he, God, would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Uh, he wouldn't be sending this upon you if you were, if you were righteous. So you, you've fallen into some sin, Job. And so this appears probably to be the reason for the disciples' question. Uh, is, is this man suffering because of some 
personal sin that his parents committed? Was the sin of his parents imputed to him and he's suffering for their sin, which we've already noted, God says, no, that, that isn't, uh, that isn't uh, uh, justice, um, uh, not from a divine perspective. Uh, or was he suffering for some personal sin? And again, we do suffer for our own sins. But uh, he was born blind, uh, and Jesus says he wasn't suffering from some, for some personal sin. He wasn't blind from birth because of some personal sin on his part either. Verse 3, and we'll close with this verse, show, uh, John 9, 3. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Uh, Jesus clearly answers the question of the disciples. There was no direct and immediate judicial relationship cause to effect between this man being born blind and some personal sin that he or his parents had committed. Now that's not to deny, let's make very clear, that's not to deny that God does bring physical illness or even death upon unbelievers for their sin, as in the case of Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, when Herod would... Uh, accepted very boastfully, proudly, the acclamation of, of the uh, people from Tyre and Sidon. And it says, because he uh, accepted their acclamation in pride, he accepted that he looked like a god. And he didn't say, no, I'm not a god. <laughs> You've You've got everything all messed up here. He accepted it. It says in verse 23, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Yeah, God does punish people for personal sins. Uh, unbelievers in this case. He does punish unbelievers uh, for personal sins. In fact, he punishes entire nations for national sins, as we read in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the, sin, the sins of a nation were brought before God, and he brought judgment, pestilence, war, uh, captivity, uh, death, um, sometimes most horrible forms of death upon uh, nations for their national sins. So yes, God does do that. But God also brings uh, physical illness and even death upon believers for personal sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, after the Apostle Paul goes through the institution of the Lord's Supper, he basically addresses why so many of them were sick. Weak, sick, and many had even died. He says in verse, verses 30 through 32, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we 
should not be judged, that is judged by God. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So God brought weakness, physical weakness. He brought uh, sickness and he brought death to those who abused the Lord's Supper, those who came unworthily to the Lord's Supper, those who did not consider the poor among them, uh, but rather uh, separated themselves from the poor, treated their brethren as if, uh, again, they, they were on such a lower plane than them who had uh, riches and wealth and, and could enjoy uh, a bounteous feast while their brethren are over there at the love feast going without any food. And uh, here, again, the Lord, the Lord is uh, uh, demonstrating uh, through the Apostle Paul that uh, this was chastening. It was not, again, punishment. Punishment uh, is getting even with someone, repaying someone uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. God's justice uh, against the wicked is a repayment to the wicked, to those unforgiven sinners, is a just repayment for their sins. God does judicially repay punishment to, uh, to those who are unforgiven sinners. Yes, he does. As a just judge. But he does not punish and repay those who are his own dear children. He does not repay them with punishment. He's not getting even with us when he brings illness upon us due to our sin, due to our um, rebellion against him as his children. He's not bringing punishment. He's chastening us. He's disciplining us because he loves us. And he uses afflictions. He uses trials. He uses even death as a tool, as a means to take out, uh, as it were, the, uh, the paddle, uh, to paddle his children, uh, to tell them, uh, you can't continue going in this direction. If you truly belong to me and God knows who does and doesn't, um, uh, he will chasten us when we, again, act like rebellious children. Uh, when we repent, when we're quick to repent, God is so merciful. When we're quick to seek his forgiveness, God is so merciful to us. But if we continue in an unrepentant state, uh, as a good father, as a loving father, he's not going to allow us to continue wandering away from him, disobeying him, thumbing our nose at God, making fun of, of him as it were. He's going to discipline us, not punish us, getting even with us. It's not retributive justice that he's bringing against us as his children. That he brings against unforgiven sinners, but it is chastening. Loving chasing. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 teaches. That every son that he approves of, that he loves, he chastens. And he says, it hurts. It's like being scourged. It's like being uh, whipped. It really hurts. Much of what God brings, but he does so. That we might walk in holiness. 
that we might walk in holiness. <clears throat> you might want to, again, I won't go into uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, but God, in order to prevent Paul, not because Paul was proud about the visions that he had received, uh, even uh, uh, going, having a vision uh, of being in the third heaven and hearing and things that uh, he said uh, he could not even speak of. Uh, but in order to prevent the pride, God sent a, a thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan, uh, a thorn in the flesh, that he would not be uh, uh, overwhelmed, uh, that he would not be uh, subject to the pride that would come from, um, ordinarily come from having seen such glorious things in heaven. And so um, uh, he prayed three times that that thorn in the flesh would be removed and God said, my grace is sufficient. And so again, it was not because Paul had committed some personal sin and he was being chastened for it, but it was in that case that he might not, that he might not um, uh, fall into that sin of pride. And so it was preventative in that particular instance. How many times again in our own lives does the Lord send various trials afflictions physical afflictions illnesses our way uh, for either personal sins that we refuse to repent of uh, or in order to teach us in the school of Christ in order to prevent us from going off so that we draw closer to him so that we come near to him because when we are usually suffering uh, as Christians, uh, our heart flees to the Lord Jesus when we're suffering, when we're in pain. That's where our heart goes, is to him. Uh, if our heart truly belongs to him, that's where our heart goes, is to him. And the Lord knows that. And so he brings, again, these things into our life in order to... Uh, uh, send us to Christ. Jesus says here, and I'll close on this, uh, Jesus says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, notice, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Jesus declares that this man was born blind and had lived all of those years in blindness in order that God's glory might be displayed in order to glorify God. Now, from, a, from our human perspective, we're going to say, God, that's not fair. But from God's perspective, whose perspective we must have, ours isn't going to matter anything. It's not our perspective that's going to rule, to reign, that's going to carry us through this life or through judgment to come. No, it's God's perspective that matters. And from his perspective, uh, that is, that is <clears throat> the design and that is the purpose for 
for all the miseries of this life. That's the design and that's the purpose for death. Ultimately, it is to glorify God. Just as this particular man's blindness for all those years was brought upon him in order to glorify God. And you say, how does that glorify God? Because God manifested his mercy to this man at this particular point in time by giving him his sight. I don't hear the man after we'll continue reading through, but I don't hear the man complaining and saying, why did you wait so long, God, to heal me? What were you thinking, God, in allowing me to suffer this way for all of these years? He was falling upon the mercy of God. He was thankful that God had shown him mercy. And so God, again, glorifies himself, and this is very important to remember, again as I close, God glorifies himself by exercising his justice against the wicked or his mercy and grace to those whom he has set his love upon. He glorifies himself in everything that happens in this world. Think of the worst kinds of things that could happen. Murder, at least in our own minds, the worst things that can happen. Rape, abduction of a child, and all that happens. And you say, how does that glorify God? Well, you say, I'm not God. I can't answer in each and every instance how that glorifies God. But I do believe that God is so mighty and so powerful he could have prevented that from happening if he chose to. The fact that it did happen means that he purposed for it to happen. And he had a reason for that to happen. And so again, was it for his justice to show again his justice? Was it for his mercy in some way to show his mercy? Again, we don't know. We have to, again, in heaven, uh, we'll understand things much more clearly. Uh, we, we see through a veil uh, darkly, uh, uh, presently, uh, 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 and we, we do not see, and we will not see face to face to understand all of these things. Uh, we, we can ask God, help me to understand. We can't demand from God. Uh, he's God. But, dear ones, we might as well throw out the Bible, we might as well throw out everything that Christ has said if we do not believe that there's a purpose, a divine purpose and a reason for everything that happens. That's simply accepting the atheist's perspective that it's all random chance. There's no purpose, there's no reason to anything that happens. We who are Christians who believe the word of God even if we do not understand, must be able to fall back on that truth. There is a divine reason and purpose for everything that happens in order to glorify God by way of showing his justice or by way of showing his mercy. We'll stop there.
let's stand in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess, Lord, our ignorance. Uh, we do not know, we do not understand, but we come to a God who is omniscient, who knows all things, uh, whose purposes and plans are beyond our comprehension. If we could understand God, we would be God. Uh, we cannot understand thee, Lord. And therefore, we fall at thy throne of mercy. We pray, Lord, teach and instruct us. Help us, Lord, not to charge thee uh, falsely, not to charge thee, uh, Lord, uh, in a sinful and grievous way. Uh, but, Lord, help us to simply uh, fall before thee uh, in humility and to know that, that there is a reason and purpose that thou hast ordained for all that occurs and happens. Just as this blind man, there was a reason and purpose for his blindness. And uh, we see that realized at this point in his life. And so we draw from that, that in every circumstance and situation, there is a reason and a purpose. And help us to be able to rest and find safety, security, and peace uh, in that truth. Um, people, uh, for the most part, Lord, uh, if we do not have that uh, truth uh, very present uh, in our mind and clinging to that truth by faith, uh, we will be running about in panic and fear, and despair, and hopelessness. Lord, to be able to rest in that truth uh, is what brings a settled calm because the God who loves us from all eternity, the God who has made us, the God who has redeemed us and saved us is the very God who has ordained all that happens in our life. And we thank thee for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions uh, from our study this evening? Again, very sobering truths, but uh, very, very important truths. Uh, very practical. Theological, yes. Doctrinal, yes. But very, very practical. Um, determining basically how we live our lives. Uh, without those truths, I dare say, uh, we have um, uh, really no foundation. Um, uh, with that understanding, with that truth, we have a very firm foundation uh, in, this, in this life and in the life to come. All right, you are dismissed.